Father, we know that we are redeemed and restored, saved, regenerated by your grace. It is right to sing this and to praise you because the cause of our salvation is you. The cause of it is, is your grace. It's the means of it might be, might be faith, but we have never been saved because of faith. We're saved because of grace by means of faith. And so, Lord, you have, you have so graciously offered a salvation to sinners who don't deserve it in such a way that you get all the glory and we get all the benefit. This is um, a reality that we can, we can really hardly put a gratitude into words for. We, we struggle to even know how to, how to thank you and how to praise you. We can just tell you, thank you, Lord, for being so gracious. We praise you for being a gracious God. We're overwhelmed that a God like you, who is perfectly righteous, who loves and delights in expressing perfect justice, perfect judgment, and you also delight in forgiving sin, iniquity, and transgression. You delight in showing your compassion and your mercy to sinners who, who deserve nothing but your judgment. And so, Lord, this morning, we just pray that you would get glory that you deserve as God, a Savior, the God who saves by grace, the God who saves in such a way that even how you save, whom you save, the way that you save, shows how great and glorious of a God you are. And I pray that as we look at your salvation, as we look at your power over sin and death and demons, that we might once again, be overwhelmed at your mercy towards us, the mercy that uh, you have put on display to any who are here this morning who are your children, any who have enjoy, enjoy communion with you because of their identity with Jesus Christ, your son. And so, Lord, as we open up your word and as we look at your power, as we look at your mercy, as we look at you, the God who saves, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts once again an overwhelming um, worship, an overwhelming awe, and that you would impress upon us the, the, the duty, the need, the obligation to be vocal, to proclaim your mercy to, to a, a lost and dying Phoenix and Tempe and Gilbert and everywhere else. We just pray that you would use this church to put your mercy on display. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, you may grab a seat, and I want to invite you to grab your Bible as well. Open up to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We're starting a new chapter, and I'm looking forward to this story. It's a, it's a profound story. It's a very famous story. It's the story of the demoniac, a man who was possessed by demons who Jesus delivered and saved. And you've probably heard the punch of this story even coming out in my prayer this morning. I have been just thinking about the power of God over demons and his mercy and his grace to save and how unique it is among all of this world, this inhabited world, to be an individual who has been saved by grace, regenerated, given life when we were spiritually dead, and to be delivered from the power of Satan into the power of Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's an overwhelming reality. And you who are part of the church of Jesus Christ, you who are saved, you know what a minority you are on this planet. 
Alexander Solzhenitsyn is a name that most of you probably don't recognize, but he's, if you do, it's probably for his, his work, um, Gulag Archipelago. He wrote this work as a, kind of a description of his experience in communist Russia. He was a very decorated captain in the Soviet army during World War II. He was sentenced to the Gulag for eight years for criticizing Stalin and the Soviet government in some private letters. In his eight years, he experienced torture and isolation. He experienced the psychological treatment that, is, that went into how uh, Russia maintained its communist statist regime. After he got out, he began writing, and his writing was kind of leaking out of Russia, and it began to be translated. And in 1970, he, he won the Nobel Prize for one of his works. He was living in Moscow. He was under in heavy surveillance by the KGB. He decided that he was not going to speak in person, which the, the Nobel speech was to be delivered in Sweden that year. He decided he wasn't going to leave Moscow for fear that he would not be let, uh, allowed to return. So he wrote his acceptance speech and smuggled it out of the country on a negative, a microfish-sized negative of the speech hidden in a, in a camera. In that speech, he wrote the following. In order to mount this platform from which the Nobel lecture is read, a distant platform offered only once in a lifetime, I have climbed not three or four makeshift steps, but hundreds and even thousands of them, unyielding, precipitous, frozen steps leading out of the darkness and cold where it was my fate to survive, while others, perhaps with a greater gift and stronger than I, have perished. Of them, I myself met but a few on the archipelago of Gulag, shattered into its fractionary multitude of islands and beneath the millstone of shadowing and mistrust. I did not talk to them all. Of some I only heard, of others still I only guessed." Those who fell into that abyss, already bearing a literary name, are at least known, but how many were never recognized, never once mentioned in public, and virtually no one managed to return. A whole national literature remained there, cast into oblivion, not only without a grave, but without even underclothes, naked, without a number tagged onto its own. Um, Russian literature did not cease for a moment, but from the outside it appeared a wasteland. Where a peaceful forest could have grown, there remained, after all, the felling, um, only two or three trees overlooked by chance. As I stand here today, accompanied by the shadows of the fallen, with bowed head, allowing others who were worthy before to pass ahead of me to this place, as I stand here, how am I to divine and to express what they would have wished to say? The obligation has long weighed upon us, and we have understood it. As I read that acceptance speech, which was never delivered orally, the words impressed me, a sense of minority that he felt to be one of two or three who had survived the gulags, who could even write about it in Russian literature. And as I thought about how rare a survivor like Solzhenitsyn really is, I thought, 
what a minority we experience, we who've been delivered from the power of Satan into the kingdom, the glorious kingdom of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Scriptures are very clear. Every man is born in sin, and the whole world lies in the lap of Satan. 1 John 5.19 says, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul himself wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Satan is the god of this world. And he describes the control that Satan has over those who are worldly. And listen to these words. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I'm going to read verses, four through, uh, verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor adulterating the word of God, but with the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And so he's explaining that he's showcasing the gospel by a clean conscience, demonstrating power over sin, and that is the presentation of the gospel. And then he says this, if you're thinking of, well, if that's the case, who wouldn't believe? Here's your answer, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case, those who are perishing, the God of this world, lowercase g, Satan himself, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness... And so he takes the phrase from Genesis of creation, where there was no light existing. God said, let light, let there be light. So, of course, non-existent light obeyed and began existing. And similar to that, where there was nothing and God created light out of nothing, he says, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so those who are perishing, which as I speak to us who are Christians, as I speak to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you know what it was like to be in sin, to be enslaved to your sin and your self-love under the power of Satan. And for God to say, let there be light, and you saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. And it was a glory that was totally foreign to you. It was a glory that you had no appreciation or taste for before that moment. But God created a response. He created life in his formerly dead soul. This is an unreal privilege. A minority who have walked the face of the planet have experienced deliverance from the power of Satan. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is also equally clear, and I want to read these words to you because I want you to have a picture in your mind of power, the power of Satan over those who are in opposition to the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, Paul writes this, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, 
patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. He's describing those who oppose the gospel, the ministry of the, the, of the New Testament, the ministry of the church. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him, to do his will. Now, those who are opposed to the truth of the gospel are enslaved to the power of Satan. They have been held captive by Satan to do his will. He's the God of this world, the lowercase g, God of this world. And we see in Mark chapter 5, one of the most dramatic portrayals of salvation And it's a man who is very clearly, very visibly under the dominion of Satan. And it's an obvious story of of Satan's dominion. The story without this profound demon possession might be a little bit more subtle, a little bit less obvious. But nevertheless, it's still the same. In our sin, we are under the dominion of Satan, held captive to do his will. And this is the story of one man who was delivered. This is the story of a man who is one of the few, the minority, who have experienced what it feels like and what it means to be delivered from the power of Satan into the kingdom of God's own son. And so, like Solzhenitsyn, it falls to us who've experienced this kind of mercy to be those who proclaim it, publish it, spread it, and declare it to a lost and dying world. As we study the story of the demoniac in Mark 5, of course, Christian, this becomes all of our story. And his obligation to go to his own and to tell his own people how merciful God has been to him is a charge, in a sense, for us to go and tell this city how merciful God has been to us. As we work through this story, I have four points just kind of working through the outline. And I'll, I'll just kind of preface you. The, the outline really is just a kind of a helpful heading for the sections of the story. And so each kind of change of focus, each time that Mark changes the focal point, who's the major focal point of each particular section of the story, I've tried to bring that out in this, in this outline. But the outline is only helpful to walk through the story. It's not actually going to lead to the point of the story. This, the point of this story is really understood in the context of where we are at. We're in this section of the Gospel of Mark from chapters 1 through 8 where we're describing how shocking Jesus' identity really is. It's the Son of, Man, Son of God has shown up on the face of the earth and um, virtually no one believes his identity except the demons. And this is another one of those examples where we see a clear testimony. These demons know exactly who he is. The smaller section that we're in from chapters 3 to 6, Mark's documenting the unbelief of the nation, the unbelief of the people. And at this particular juncture, Jesus is leaving the highly Jewish populated area. He goes across the Sea of Galilee to a Gentile area, and he begins ministering to the Gentiles. And we're going to see several stories like this in the next several chapters, where he begins ministering in a very parallel fashion to how he ministered to the Jews. He's going to minister to the Gentiles in a very similar fashion. And this ends up being um, 
a man in the Gentile area who is clearly unclean in about every category you can possibly imagine after reading the book of Leviticus. If there's an unclean category, you're pretty much going to find it or some sort of equivalent in this particular story. And God, God radically saves him. And he makes him an evangelist to bring the gospel back to his own people. So this man was rescued from the power of demons. And to understand, uh, just follow along on this story, we're going to start by looking at verses 1 through 5 at the sinner. That's the demoniac. He is unclean, enslaved, and miserable. Let's begin in verse 1. There, they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. Now, in verse 1, it's a very simple geographical marker. It's a typical way to start the story. Uh, you don't need to be any, you know, confused or, or have any trouble from the word Gerasenes. Uh, when you read the book of Matthew, you'll find the word Gadarenes. And those are just two different terms. Um, the, ter- the, the, the town of Gerasa and the town Gadara, they are probably about 20 miles apart. And so that would refer not even to the town itself. It actually just refers to the legion of the people, the, the region where those people would happen to live. So it's really just referring to two different, you know, um, towns that are close by. But on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, there you have all of these Gentiles living. In fact, it's interesting if you go down to um, verse 20, uh, just jump down there for a second. It says that the man went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis and Decapolis just means 10 cities. And there were 10 Gentile cities on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And these, this would have been two of them, uh, Gadara and Gerasa. So there's really no confusion here. It's not a contradiction and it's not an error. It's just a, that's the region. And so Mark, of course, here says it's the region or the country of the Gerasenes. Verse 2, when he got out of the boat... Immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Now, in Numbers chapter 31, verse 19, uh, we read that if someone is exposed to the dead, you would be ceremonially unclean for seven days. And you'd have to go outside the camp for seven days in order to achieve some sort of ceremonial purity. And the, this man is living among the dead. He's living in a cemetery. He's, he's, living, he's, not, he's not visiting. He's not dropping off flowers. He's not, there's, there's, he is living among dead people, living amongst corpses. And even the very location is indicative of how unclean this man is. If that's not bad enough, the second half of the verse points out that he has an unclean spirit. Unclean spirit, of course, uh, is a term that can refer to any of the demons, any of Satan's and his, or his angels, an unclean spirit. Verse 3 explains he has his dwelling among the tombs, so he's living there. So he would have been perpetually unclean. There's no way he's getting clean. There's no way he's, he's ceremonially pure. He lives there. Verse 3 continues, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. And the way Mark tells it, even anymore, is a helpful addition, you know, a helpful term to highlight. This sounds like it's a pretty regular occurrence. I mean, I don't know, he doesn't get into detail about how often they attempted to do this, but it sounds like a regular thing. Like, are we going to bind him? Like, what are we going to do this week? What are we going to do? You know, last week it didn't work. How about this week? Uh, Maybe a new tactic. So they've been resorting to chains. And in verse Four, it even says, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles torn in pieces or broken in pieces. 
So you got metal, just think of the metal shackles, the metal cuffs. They put those on his ankles, they tie him up with chains, and he just rips them, shreds them. I mean, this is an incredibly supernatural strength. This man is not safe. He is a threat. The effects of this man's um, life uh, are a threat to everyone who passes by. Verse 4b says, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Verse 3, no one was able to bind him. Verse 4, no one was strong enough to subdue him. No one could exert any force over this man. As James Edwards writes, the description of the demoniac in verses 2 through 5 is one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. He is a terror to himself and others. And that becomes clear in verse 5. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. He's cutting himself with stones. I mean, obviously, the harm that this man is inflicting on himself is obvious, He doesn't get rest night or day, constantly afflicted, constantly miserable, totally enslaved. These consequences ruin his life, and the consequences of our sin ruin our lives. In fact, even a lost and dying world hates the consequences of sin. A lost and dying world has made a living of trying to maximize the ability to gratify their sin while avoiding the consequences of that sin. And here, this man, his effects, his consequences of his life is affecting everyone around him to the point that they are trying to subdue him, trying to minimize it so that they can get after living their life with their own consistent self-love. And they're enslaved to Satan just in a different way. Satan could not care less about your physical or spiritual welfare. In fact, he hates both. Of course, he would, he would gladly use your physical welfare to ruin you spiritually, but if he can ruin both, he will. The consequences of our sin and our enslavement to Satan's will, um, it's, it's really kind of beyond my ability to put into words. We see these effects, and we see the effects on the people that we we love, and we see the effects on the people around us, and we do whatever we can to minimize the effects of those consequences. Sometimes, while trying to even get our own sin, if we're not in Christ, we'll try to continue getting our own sin, getting access to what we love, while minimizing the effects of the other people who love the same things we love. And we don't want to be affected by the effects of their sin. It's hard for me to shake the... uh, image in my mind of one, one day I went to the courthouse with a man in my church who um, we were visiting the, to the first appearances. One of his children was, was uh, arrested the night before, and so there we are watching the judge, and this is a first appearance, so everybody's coming out of the cell, and, and um, the judge was, was in the, the courthouse room where I was, and it was a live, live stream to the, uh, to the jail. And, and uh, this, this one particular girl comes up on the camera, and the judge starts to read out the sentence, and in light of the nature of the crime, starts to describe where she can and can't go if she does post bail, and then proceeds to post bail at such a high dollar amount that this poor girl couldn't even possibly have posted bail. 
And you can just see her shoulders sag as he posted the bail at a very high dollar amount. And then he just says, next. And she says, Your Honor, can I say something? He says, what's that? She said, I'm pregnant. And I'm addicted to heroin. And he said, I'm sorry, next. And of course, I don't believe the judge was necessarily un uncompassionate. He was just trying to do his job. And he had to serve the public by getting through everybody who had been arrested the night before. But I was struck by the mercilessness of Satan. He loves to ruin people with lies and laugh at their demise. And there's no greater deception than to ruin people's souls, laughing at the demise of their souls by lying to them spiritually. Of course, you know, if Satan were to just make our lives as miserable as that particular um, girl, but we were sound, safe and sound spiritually, he would be miserable. He'd gladly give us the world if it meant for us to lose our soul. And this man, here he is, miserable in every way. In fact, we, we can even imply, I mean, I can't prove that, it ha that he was naked at this particular scene, but we can certainly know that he was typically naked because in verse 14, we're about to get to it. I'm sorry, in verse 15, the, the city comes out to see what happens after Jesus is done with this man, and he's sitting down clothed and in his right mind, and they're shocked that he was clothed. So regardless if he was naked in this particular scene, he was notably and no, typically unclothed. And so this man is miserable, he's miserably cold, and in fact, the, the nakedness is probably has to do with his sexual perversion. And so he's enslaved to sexual perversion, and you just see Satan ruining this man in every single way possible. And here he is gashing himself with stones. In verses 6 to 13... Christ is the focal point here, and we see his power and authority over demons. In uh, verse 6, Mark says, Seeing Jesus from a distance, the demoniac ran up and bowed down before him. What an unexpected response. In light of verses 2 to 5, I mean, every other passerby who goes along that way and goes along that path, I mean, you just, they stop traveling. I mean, if, they, if, the, if the chains don't hold them, if the shackles don't hold them, it's just like, okay, that, that, that highway might as well be, it's, it's like bridge out. Don't even take that road anymore because you're, you're going to get beat up at best, possibly killed if you go near this man's cave. And so they don't even travel that way. He just pounces on everyone and annihilates everyone, and no one can over, overcome him. No one can subdue him. Christ gets out of the boat, and he comes charging down the hill straight at Christ and falls down in worship. Of course, it's not a worship of a heart bent in humble reverence. It's, it's a worship of a man possessed by demons who recognize their maker. This is profound and shocking. It is shocking in light of verses 1 through 5 that you see this man come down and just fall on his knees. And, but it's not shocking in light of Mark 3. Remember what we looked at? This is, let's, let's go back a little bit and see if, see if you remember this. Go back to Mark chapter 3 and uh, look, at verse, look at verse 9, Mark 3, 9. 
he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. So he goes out into a boat as was typical and he teaches from the boat. And the reason why he had such a crowd is explained in verse 10, for he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And I, I, I really wish that the uh, root had been, come, had been translated here because the word is they, they fell upon him. They fell upon him. So all of the people, this is that the curiosity seekers, they just want a, a good show. They want a good miracle. They, they want their, their needs met. They, they want their bellies filled. They want their diseases healed. They want their, they want their demoniacs uh, delivered. And so they're falling upon Jesus out of self-seeking motives. You go to the very next verse, it's the same root, but it's a different word. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him. People are falling upon him out of curiosity, out of self-seeking motives. Demons are falling before him out of forced submission. They simply had no other choice. They recognized the superior authority of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so in light of verse 11, we actually shouldn't be surprised at what we see in Mark 5, verse 6. This man who's possessed by these demons, he comes running up, goes flying down the hill, sliding, I picture him sliding on his knees in just forced obedience, forced submission to the Son of God himself. Verse 7, shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus Son of the Most High God. Son of God. That's the theme of this gospel. And once again, we still don't have it on the lips of a man. We got it on the lips of of a demon. Coming through a man. But nevertheless, these demons are begging Jesus I beg you by God, I I implore you by God, do not torment me. Now, this is profound because in this verse, we learn a lot about what demons know and what they don't know. Turn for a second to Revelation 20. Revelation 20, um, we, we see the picture of God subduing the earth at the beginning of the chapter for a reign, the reign of Christ on earth, but it's before he actually subjugates and subdues every enemy, uh, namely death. That's not subdued until the end of the chapter, at the end of the thousand years. But in verse 1, John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So in this thousand year period, Satan has no more ability to deceive the nations anymore. But then, of course, he's let out at the end of the thousand years. There's a showdown. It's kind of like a, it's hard to even call it a battle because he shows up to take on Christ and a sword comes out of his mouth and the battle never starts. It's over before it started. But skip down to verse seven. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Then he comes out to deceive the nations. And then all the unbelievers who were refused to believe Christ of their own will, they weren't even under uh, enslaved to Satan's will, 
They're, they're living on a planet that's governed by Jesus Christ, and they still, not all of them, believe Jesus Christ. And you skip down to verse 10. After God wipes up every enemy, verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's eternal torment. This demon knows that. The demons know that. They know their end. They're just pent up with this frantic, frenetic fury, just trying to get away with what they can before their eternal, unending torment begins. And they'll, the only joy they know is the joy of taking souls with them. Verse 8, for he had been saying to him, and that's of course Jesus, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And so he uses this, this word legion, it's just a, a collective singular noun referring to many. Uh, a, a technical legion would be over 5,000 soldiers. Uh, a legionnaire in the Roman army would have been over 5,000 soldiers. Now, we don't know how many, but we do know he uses the word legion to describe, or they would use the word legion to describe themselves. And so... They, he began to implore him not to send them out of the country. And you can even see Mark kind of trying to figure out. It's like he, he uses singular at times as he's been doing, fond to do up to verse 10. Then he switches to the plural. And then you see plural verbs of the, used when the demons are subjects. In verse 12, the demons begged him. That's a plural verb. And then in verse 13, they came out of him. That's a plural verb as well. So in verse 10, he switches to the plural. And he, he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So now they're begging the Son of God who has superior authority, who has divine authority. They know they're speaking to their creator, and they're begging for permission that they wouldn't get sent to, you know, to some other country. Verse 11, now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And that's, of course, typical. That's not typical of, of, of Israel. That's not typical of Jews. But this is a highly Gentile area. And so, um, in fact, the Mishnah even says, um, in, the, in the land of Israel, it describes, you know, the, the priests don't raise chicken anywhere in the land because of the, the, the need for cleanliness. And it says even in, in the, the book Baba Kama, chapter 7, verse 7, they do not rear pigs anywhere. It just doesn't happen. So this is a, a virtually either slightly apostate or entirely Gentile community. And there's this massive herd of pigs, as we find out in verse 13, about 2,000 of them. So there's about 2,000 pigs in 11. Verse 11, they're, they're on the mountain nearby and they are feeding. And so what happens is in verse 12, the demons are begging him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Verse 12, Oh, sorry, verse, yes, so then in verse 12, you, you have um, this idea that the demons are saying, put us into an animal, which is kind of interesting. You're like, well, what's, what's going on there? Well, obviously, we know that pigs are unclean. But it's also interesting, I, I did find it fascinating. There, there's, 
you know, a history of even in, in Babylon, there was a exorcistic incantation discovered in history that offers a pig as an alternative host for an expelled demon. So it's just interesting that there was this idea floating around that that would happen. In this case, that's exactly what the demons want. They want to get sent into, sent into, the, into the pigs. If, it's, if it couldn't be more clear, I mean, we're, we're, we're 12 verses into this story, and it's like probably 50% of the verses have something to do with uncleanliness. It's pretty clear. This guy is unclean. He is not fit. He's not righteous. He's not on good terms with God. And these demons are unclean. They love what's unclean. They hate what is pure. And so they want to get sent into these pigs. In verse 13, Jesus allowed them. He gave them permission. Notice, first of all, it's their desire to go into the pigs, but they can't do that unless the Son of God allows them. He has all authority. He allows them to go into the pigs. Coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea. And if you've been on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, um, just north of center, there's that steep bank. Uh, that's the traditional site of where this story happened. And, of course, it's a, it's a steep hill, several hundred yards, just going down, downhill right into the bank. 2,000 swine, they were thrown into the sea, and they were drowned in the sea. And it's important to notice that, uh, or to note, I should say, that pig can, pigs can swim. You can see here the absolute destructive desire of these demons. They possess the man, he's gashing himself. They possess the pigs, they kill the pigs. In verse 14, there's a transition, and Mark moves from the Son of God, Jesus, who had power and authority over demons, to the locals. And so now for the next several verses, he's going to focus on the locals. What were the, what were the people who lived in the area? What were they thinking? And the locals are just absolutely shocked and afraid at what's happening. This is a terrifying reality. Verse 14, their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. You imagine, like, are, are you sure? I mean, I don't want to go back out on that road. We, we take that footpath, we're going to get annihilated if what you say is not true. Because the guy's just dominating everyone. So I just imagine these curiosity seekers, like, coming timidly down these paths, coming back over to the, to the, back to the, sh the shore of the Sea of Galilee from their towns and from their countryside. And they came to see what it was that had happened. Verse 15 they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. This is terrifying. This is absolutely terrifying. They're looking at what's going on. And they're seeing a man who they've never, probably never seen before clothed. They've certainly never seen in their right mind, in his right mind. And they're seeing him completely calm. Even the way Mark tells the story is so, like, startlingly parallel to the previous story. Remember how he calmed the sea. The sea is just roaring and it's just raging. 
And it's a power that disciples cannot deal with. They have no authority to control. Jesus stands up, tells the, the storm to, to be silent, and just hush, be still, and it's immediately calm. And here is the, the power of demons, and the man is just absolutely frenetic, out of control, inflicting harm on himself and everyone around him. And now all of a sudden, they see this man completely calm, as calm as the sea. And the response of the locals is actually the same as the disciples. They are terror-stricken. Remember in verse, chapter 4, verse 41, after Jesus calmed the sea, he, he kind of rebukes them. He says, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid. Who is this then that even the wind and the sea should obey him? It's a little bit more terrifying to realize that God's in your boat than it was to be at the hands of the sea. So now the locals, they come out. And I mean, I, you could, I, I think you could probably misread this and imagine that the way that these locals are responding is, oh, well, this is just a little bit of hurt because, you know, the, the, the economy is virtually going to go through, a, like a lo- the local economy at least, is going to go through a collapse because the loss of 2,000 pigs, I mean, that is just devastating to that small town. And that's probably true. It probably would be economically devastating. And they come out and they see the, the, the 2,000 pigs. I mean, you can see them probably floating around, like if they, whatever's washing up on shore, and that's like, that's their livelihood. That's their revenue. But what causes the fear and what causes the terror is a superior power over Satan and sin. In fact, if, if Jesus had just zapped those pigs dead from a distance with his, the wave of his two fingers, they probably would have wanted to come see more just out of curiosity seeking. What they're not okay with is the invasion of divine power in the world of mere men who are under the dominion of Satan and a power to tie the strong man, namely Satan himself, and deliver men who are enslaved to their own sin and to put them in their right mind, clothed, worshiping Jesus Christ. It's interesting, you know, people are always concerned about the effects of sin and how it impacts their life, their relationships, their pocketbook, their social or professional advancement. And we hate how the effects and the consequences of sin interfere with our ability to love ourselves. You see in this story... By the time you get to verse 15, they are terrified because they have tried their best. They have used every effort they know of socially or even physically to try to subdue this man and to put him in a position where they could continue just living a life that they want to live and they have no ability to stop it. Christ comes in with a superior power and they are terrified. They, They try to restrain the man. They try to prevent him from harming travelers. But here comes Christ with the power of God on display, and they are terrified. Why why is that so terrifying? Well, think about it. It, First of all, it's a rebuke to their sin. It's a rebuke to their own enslavement to Satan and to the the powers of of Satan himself and their own enslavement to self-love. When it comes to religion, we will 
glad that the world will gladly, gladly praise and applause and find partnership and even say that religion is good because it's doing good things for the community and for my experience and for making me enjoy a better life. And we don't even mind if we slap the name Christ on it, if it gives me what I want. The world will applaud and even tolerate people of quote-unquote faith so long as it's not biblical. Why is it that every form of Christianity except biblical Christianity can be applauded and tolerated? Why is it that the world even recognizes, they even tip their hat to the truth of the gospel revealed in the New Testament when all the perverse forms that slap Christ on, the, on a man-made message find ready acceptance? But this one, not at all. This one is too scary. It's too terrifying. Somebody recently sent me an interview of a, um, some, some notable figure. I don't even actually know who it was. Probably, I'm guessing, singer or actress. I don't even know what she did, but she was famous enough to be on a talk show. And in this video, the talk show host um, is, was a, um, is, is a Catholic. And the actress, singer, whoever, superstar said, hey, I really appreciate that you are a man of faith. And I appreciate you even showcasing your faith and, and practicing your faith. And I found that fascinating because, um, um, you know, I, I, I know, I know next to nothing about the talk show host. I know one piece of information about this talk show host. I had seen his commencement address at his own alma mater, and it was, I can't remember, either Northwestern or Dartmouth, and it was an absolute exposure of just crass humor trying to entertain graduates before they got their degree. And he proceeded to accept the praise for his faith and to talk about how he hopes that Christ has a sense of humor, and I remember reading comments below this post that was sent to me, and people were saying, see, this is the kind of public display of the truth, public pro proclamation of the gospel that we need more of. Most Protestants couldn't even do this, and they would probably critique it because they would say that it didn't even have the gospel in it. And I'd say, yeah, that's, that's the right critique. Number one, it doesn't have the gospel in it, and yes, that is a problem. That's exactly why it's popular. Because it makes the world a better place. And in this case, it's as superficial as he makes me laugh and he happens to say he's a Christian. And especially when he makes me laugh over crass things. Because there's no threat there. I mean, this is exactly what Paul said would happen. Do you remember? Remember first, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3? Listen to how he describes the church in the end of, uh, the end of days. He said, this is going to, you read this list and you think, okay, what's so unique about this? He's describing the world. You know, the point is he's saying this is going to be the church. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. This vice lift starts with, starts with lovers of self and lovers of money. It ends with lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then comes this description in verse 5. You ready for it? Holding to a form of godliness, 
although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. It couldn't be more clear that the world's going to... The world, the world is not scared of a form of religion that has no power. The world is scared and terrified when somebody who used to be under the power of Satan, enslaved to self-love, is delivered from that position of sin and begins worshiping the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with a humble, holy, pure life. That is not comfortable for the world. This is startling. Go back to Mark chapter 5, in verse 16, Mark says that those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man, and they told them all about the swine. So they're telling the whole story, and when they're hearing all that's happening, they are already scared because they know they're dealing with, and this is not a form of godliness without power. This is actual power. And they now are without excuse they are without excuse. They can no longer say, hey, we're just living how we've always lived. Or if we really, if God expected us to live differently, then he'd have to give us a greater power and there'd have to be a greater power available. They have all the excuses are being stripped from them. And so what do they do? Verse 17, they beg him to leave their region. They just want him gone. In verses 18 to 20, we see the Sinner, the demoniac, back in the focal point. Let's pick it up in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, that's Jesus. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. This is the third time we had some begging going on. The demons were begging that they'd get sent into swine. The locals were begging Christ to get out of their countryside. And now this sinner who is saved, is begging Christ that he could simply be with him. What a sweet desire. In fact, that's the very purpose of Jesus' discipleship with the 12, remember? Go back to Mark chapter 3, verse 14. Mark 3, 14, Mark says, He appointed 12 so that, he, that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. The very first purpose statement of their discipleship was that they might be with him. He wanted time with the 12 to pour into them, to disciple them. This man gets saved. He is overwhelmed at the power of Christ, the deliverance of Christ, the compassion and mercy of Christ to relieve him from such a miserable state that he says, I just want to go with you. Please take me in your boat. Take me back across the lake. I don't care what it's like. I don't care where you're going. Just take me with you. He wants to be with Christ. And that's the right desire. But that's not Christ's desire. Look at verse 19. And he did not let him. That's going to be a first major test for this man. He just wanted to be with Christ. And Christ said, no, that's not what I have for you. Well, what? Why not? Notice what Jesus says. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you 
and how he had mercy on you. That could be devastating. This man wants to be with Christ. He begs to take him with him. Christ says, nope, I've got another mission for you. And he sends him back to the Decapolis while he goes to the other side of the lake. What? He doesn't complain. He doesn't pout. He doesn't have a temper tantrum. He doesn't self-pity. Verse 20. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things who Jesus had done for him. What did Jesus tell him to do? He said, get over there and tell him what great things the Lord, tell him what great things Yahweh has done for you. Tell him what kind of mercy Yahweh has had on you. And he gets busy by obeying, telling them, I got to tell you what great things and how great a mercy Jesus showed to me. He becomes the first evangelist to the Decapolis. And everyone was amazed. This desire to, to be with Jesus, it's not wrong, but if he were called to something else, then this could have exposed an idolatry. But this man, the, probably the most profound display that this man was set free from self-love is that now he even has a sanctified desire that God didn't grant, and he is completely humble about it. He's not even worshiping his own desires when his desire is actually a good desire. And Christ just said, I have another job for you. I have another mission for you. Here's your mandate. This is what I want you to do. I mean, when you think about why the world is, will give so much accolade and so much applause to the philanthropic, the merely temporal um, version of Christianity, and why the world is so terrified of the true gospel that actually delivers people from the dominion of sin and actually transforms them to become like Christ, and they demonstrate a superior power. It, it's, it's shown right here in this man who is absolutely not governed by his own will. He is subservient to the will of Christ. He says, this is what I want to do. Please take me with you. No, nope, you're going to do something else. Okay, great. Wow. Wow. This man understood God's mercy. He understood his compassion. He understood God's condescending pity. Think about this. If this man, who's described in, his story is told, and we don't even know his name, his story is told in Mark chapter 5, if he believed that he deserved anything from God except condemnation, he would not have been excited to go and proclaim this message to his hometown. We are never good evangelists when we lose sight of who we are and what we deserve. Jeremy Walker was right when he points out in his book, Brokenhearted Evangelist, as, as David says in Psalm 51 too, restore to me the joy of my salvation, then I will teach sinners your ways and transgressors will be converted to you. The best evangelism comes out of a brokenness over sin, an awareness of who we are, what we've been saved from. In our remaining few minutes, I want to give you an example of the opposite of this man. This man is such a profound example of somebody who was delivered from the power of Satan and delivered from self 
love and self-will, that even his sanctified personal desires are completely subservient to Christ, and he just obeys and rejoices and worships by going back to the Decapolis. However, that's not always the case. Let me give you one example of somebody who truly, I believe, truly loved the Lord, but paid the cost of asserting their will over God's will. It's the story of Uzziah. Turn quickly to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. 2 Chronicles 26. Second Chronicles 26. Uzziah is, I believe, a very godly king. He's faithful to the Lord. His economy is, is through the roof. His military is unparalleled. I mean, you might say that he is second only to Solomon by way of the welfare that he's experiencing nationally among the world's superpowers as far as it goes for the kings of Israel, for the king of Judah. But verse 16, 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, says that when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him and with him 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. It describes Azariah, who's a son of Aaron, going in with 80 valiant men. These are all priests, Levites, who should be functioning in the temple, who are supposed to be offering um, sacrifices of incense as priests. They opposed Uzziah, verse 18. They said to him, it's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. They, got him, they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. They are getting him out. He's also wanting to get out. He knows he's being stricken because of his own pride. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. And so, for about 15 years, 15 years, Uzziah had leprosy. You think, oh, he must not have been a believer. Well, the beginning of the narrative, it does say Yahweh, his God. And he was prospering nationally because he was obedient to the Lord even as a king. And here, it goes to his head. And he thinks he has the right to determine how he's going to serve the Lord. And God strikes him with leprosy for 15 years. And the question that we were talking about in our house this last week was, did he deserve that? Of course, the answer is no. He didn't deserve that. He deserved hell. 15 years of leprosy was a grace. Because God wanted to make him humble like himself. He wanted to make him like Christ. This is a grace. So the, the demoniac, he knows who he is. He knows the mercy he's been shown. 
And God says, get busy and go tell people how great Yahweh has been for you. Show, go tell them Yahweh's mercy. And he's like, you won't believe how great Jesus was to me, and you won't believe Jesus' mercy. That's terrifying to the world, and the world's going to applaud and applause. And some of you, sometimes you wonder and you get weary, and I understand, you get, we all get weary, I get it. You get weary because unbelievers respond to us in such a way sometimes, and you're just like, man, why do they, why do they come after me? And they don't even come after so-and-so and so-and-so so and else and some other form of Christianity and religion and all this other stuff. It's because if you're actually living out righteousness, if you're actually demonstrating that Christ has given you power over Satan, over sin and self-love, that is terrifying to the world. It exposes all their pretense. It's a true display of Christianity. It's a true display of Christ's glory. That's why it's terrifying. And that's why this is such a helpful, helpful example of Mark to put in the story right here to say, let me give you one example of Jesus' power over demons. There it is. And it's the story of all of us who've ever been saved delivered from our enslavement to Satan. Lord, we're so thankful for this story, and we're so thankful for its example. Lord, it's such a profound reminder to us that um, we don't want to miss a day or a moment of being faithful to you and to serve you in the way that you've called us to. Whatever that means, Lord, we just want to be faithful to you. And... We also know, Lord, that when we are not, it's because we're somewhere on that spectrum between this man and Uzziah. We're going back toward the Uzziah's side of the spectrum where we are so proud and arrogant to imagine that we know how we should serve or what following you on the path of discipleship looks like. But Lord, when, when the world sees Christians who follow you on whatever path, regardless of what it involves, but following you with joy and with power over the sin of self-love or complaining with a real power, not an empty religion, not a mere form without power, but a true power, true purity, true holiness, true humility, a true joy of a sinner reconciled to you. This, this is the display of your power over demons. It's a display of your power over the world. Lord, thank you for your power, and thank you for your mercy. For us who, by nature, deserve an infinite amount of wrath, for us who deserve hell, what you would teach us in this short life, then what you would use to make us more like your son is all of it's entirely grace. Thank you. And I pray, Lord, that we would be busy proclaiming, publishing, telling, writing, declaring to a lost and dying phoenix what great things you have done for us and how great of mercy you have shown to us. As we close and sing this song to you, Lord, I pray that it would come from a heart that truly is aware of how merciful you really are. Thank you so much for giving us a kingdom of a price without value. We cannot possibly quantify the value of the treasure that you've given to us in your son and in your kingdom. In your name we play. Amen.